Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello, I'm Caroline Kenyon and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to our latest edition of bread and butter. And today we're talking about plants, but plants in a very special way. I think there's probably hardly anyone who's not heard of the great and historic Kew Gardens. And the most wonderful cookbook has been produced, the Kew Gardens cookbook by the one and only Jenny Linford. Now, loyal listeners of Food FM will know Jenny as the much beloved presenter of A Slice of Cheese. So Jenny, congratulations on your new book. It's absolutely stunning. And I'm really excited to be discussing it with you. And welcome to the show. Thank you, Caroline. It's lovely to be here and very great fun to be interviewed instead of interviewing. (laughs) Yes, I know. A very strange feeling. And we're also really delighted to welcome two of the contributors. There are over 60 contributors to the book of these wonderful recipes, names such as Monica Galletti, Raymond Blanc, Diana Henry and Claudia Roden. And today we are thrilled to have with us Jenny Chandler and Samaya Usmani. Welcome, Samaya and Jenny. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Jenny Linford, um, just to distinguish you from our other Jenny, Jenny's one and two. Jenny, tell us about the origin of the book and how it came to be. So basically, Caroline, Kew Gardens are holding a very sort of special event or festival, I suppose, really, um, called Food Forever. And the cookbook was conceived of as something that would accompany or be part of this whole season of events. And it's about biodiversity. Kew Gardens' work is very much about conserving trying to save biodiversity, which we're losing at an alarming rate. And they wanted to highlight the issue of biodiversity with regards to food, because astonishingly, over 60% of the world's calories come from just three food crops, maize, rice and wheat. And we're eating in this very narrow way. And because of climate change, you know, there are issues because uh, crops are failing, their harvests are reduced, there's a lot of disease and, you know, our world population is growing. So actually, this is something we need to think about. And so the cookbook was, um, so it was brought to me as a project by Kew Gardens Publishing. um, And they wanted a a cookbook to get to excite people, I think, about culinary plants and fungi and get people eating in a more adventurously, trying things they hadn't tried. And so that was my job as the editor, was to then approach wonderful food writers and chefs and ask them if they would give a vegetarian recipe for the Kew Gardens cookbook. And it was just an enormous, um, exciting project to work on. And I'm thrilled with how it's turned out. Oh, that's such a, a, a wonderful introduction to it. And I find that really fascinating when you say that, um, you know, that uh, 60% of our mm. calories come from from just three three plants really out of uh, 50,000. It's quite extraordinary because I think the average British shopper buys 13 food types every week. 
only 13. And that's that includes, you know, that'll include meat and fish as well. Mm. So goodness, how narrow we are in, in what we consume. Samaya Ismani, um, so lovely to have you with us. Now, I gather that you were you were born in Pakistan. I know that you're a distinguished food writer. Your books include the beautifully named Summers Under the Tamarind Tree. Tell us, Samaya, a little bit about your relationship with, with plants and vegetarian eating and how that, that plays in with your your, your approach to food and your, your cultural inheritance. Well, thank you very much for having me here. It's a real pleasure. And, and most of all, thank you to Jenny L for having me as part of the book, because when she approached me, she did so asking me how many vegetarian recipes uh, do Pakistani people eat? Because I think there's a misconception that Pakistani food is very meat heavy. And on the face of it, it is a country that does love its meat. However, I grew up around, and, and you know, also just generally, however, people do eat a lot of lentils and very much seasonal vegetables. And it really depends on your, your household and your income. Most people that are, you know, sort of living in villages or from more modest means eat very much a vegetarian diet. Meat is always a treat. It is looked at something that's quite expensive. And one thing that I did grow up with in my relationship with veg vegetarianism and as well as eating vegetables is that in Pakistan, everything is seasonal. There is no such thing as, you know, buying, um, you know, sort of tomatoes at a time when there are no tomatoes and really in the season, we always have tomatoes because there's always a bit of sun. But, you know, other vegetables like okra only comes in certain times of year and the same thing goes for fruit. So we don't really buy mass-produced, pre-packaged, chopped vegetables. Ours are, you know, in the markets, we go in, we buy it. So my relationship growing up as a child was, my grandmother used to grow a lot of her vegetables and my mum would always grow lots of herbs so we always had a lot of fresh stuff around and it was always seasonal and then every single I think maybe three or four times a week we would go to the market together and you know we would walk into this abundantly aromatic market uh, where there would be herbs and chilies and lemons and loads of seasonal vegetables and we'd pick them with our own hands and because in my family all the women used to cook and we never had domestic cooks because everyone was very proud of the kitchen and cooking by themselves, we always went and picked the best of everything. We never allowed the shopkeeper to pick anything for us. So I had this real discerning ability to pick the right tomatoes, to pick the right coriander that looked a certain way, or, you know, potatoes that were evenly shaped. And even if they weren't evenly shaped, they were only one variety of potatoes. Or, you know, we were very particular. And my mother, even though we ate a lot of meat, because my dad loved his meat, my mother was, you know, nearly was a vegetarian. She would always want to cook lots of beautiful vegetables in lots of aromatic ways. So my relationship with vegetables is the older I'm getting, the less meat I'm eating, not just for the sustainability side, but for health and general, you know, cost effectiveness. But it's incredible what spices can do to vegetables. And that to me is the ultimate of my memory with food and vegetables is, is all the delicious vegetables used to make enhanced by herbs and spices. Oh, that's such a wonderfully uh, evocative response. Thank you, Samaya. <laughs> so Jenny, tell us a bit about your your food journey in, in the world of, of plant and vegetables. Because I know that, I mean, you're also a distinguished food writer and based in Bristol, which is a city I know very well. And it's an amazing food city. Um, but also, and, and most impressively, you were 
United Nations European Ambassador for the International Year of Pulses. So tell us a little bit about how you've come to embrace this way of eating. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, well, that title, the um, the ambassador, is something I've never managed to live down with my family, but um, <laughs> it was quite a mouthful. No, um, my food journey, well, sadly, I can't sort of follow Samaya in being quite so, having such extraordinarily exciting kind of roots. I grew up in rural Worcestershire, probably eating the kind of classic 1960s, 70s kind of weekly rotor of sort of cottage pie followed by stew followed by kind of cheese and potato pie. Not very many um, vegetarian dishes, but we did have a vegetable garden and we did always eat lots of fresh vegetables with those kind of classic kind of English dishes. So grew up, yes, eating quite a lot of vegetables, but it wasn't really until I travelled. I studied Spanish at university and ended up in Spain and then in South America that I really got excited about food. And that's where I discovered pulses. And have always really felt that they're kind of just overlooked in British culture. Yes, we eat more baked beans than the rest of the world put you know put together <laughs> but um, when it comes to all the you know the massive range of pulses there are on offer we just don't cook enough with them so i suppose it was really about sort of 10 years ago when i think i began the journey that so many british people have done of becoming a bit more kind of flexitarian and then increasingly i would say nowadays we are kind of vegetarian probably kind of 70 80% of the time so don't eat much meat or fish at all but that was when i really started playing around with pulses and decided to write a book about them and then you know it all just sort of evolved from there and we tend to have a great big pot of pulses that I cook one day a week. Then I spend the rest of the week disguising them in all sorts of different dishes <laughs> so that my family don't realise that they're eating exactly the same pulse about five times in a row. But it's very easy to do because they're just fantastically versatile things. Well, I mean, you're, you're preaching to the converted because I absolutely love pulses. But I think I think you, you said something really um, apt about, you know, that they are really easy to cook. But I think people... People are frightened of vegetarian and plant-based cookery because my son has been vegan for six years and my mother-in-law was probably one of the two best non-professional cooks that I've ever met in my life. She was an incredible cook I and mean, her flavorings were just exquisite. Nearly everything grown in her garden. She was so nervous about cooking for her grandson when he became a vegan. And I think there's a lot of fear involved in this whole area. Jenny Limsford, maybe you'd like to sort of have, a, have some thoughts on that. Well, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? I think, you know, the traditional British model of meat and two veg, which, you know, you gave the main role to meat and the side part to vegetables, it means that you have to sort of reset your, you know, recalibrate almost. And like like Jenny Chandler, I too am eating, you know, consciously, um, like both Jenny and Samaya, I am eating more vegetarian meals. Um, and that's sort of for environmental reasons, um, because I just feel that's the responsible thing to do. And I've really enjoyed, you know, it's just so interesting, actually. So when you stop sort of automatically putting meat in the centre of the meal and you start thinking, and this is, of course, you know, 
pulses, but also the wonderful vegetables. And I think, you know, we are blessed in Britain with a very wide range of ingredients available to us, you know, through the supermarkets and through food shops. Because, you know, because of the, you know, for me, one of the things I see, and this is someone, I'm speaking to someone who's half Singaporean, half English, born in London. I've always, the, one of the things I love about sort of the British food scene is the way that it's very open-minded and that it it sort of, you know, looks, you know, like you can go to M&S and eat sushi for lunch and eat alongside a sandwich, you know, and, and their curries and there's... So they have this sort of, you know, we're, there is sort of an open-mindedness about the British food scene, which I think actually is really relevant to us moving towards a more vegetarian diet. It's like, you know, draw inspiration from, from other cuisines. You know, you can, you know, eat, you know, Mexi you know, make wonderful Mexican bean dishes or Italian pasta dishes and, you know, with lovely sauces and salads and look to the, look at them, you know, the fashion for the Middle East. There's, you know, that, I mean, some, you know, Ottolenghi, I'm so proud to have Ottolenghi in the cookbook. He very kindly gave us a recipe because he's done so much, I think, to, to change people's perceptions of how, of vegetables, instead of thinking them as sort of dull and prosaic, he's made them lively and vivacious you know and and that and that set that tone you know, all these other wonderful chefs you know the the honey and co team you know we're, we're sort of surrounded by inspiration actually so i think i think it's exciting times for those who want to who want to eat more vegetables that's so interesting when you were asking your contributors for recipes jenny what kind of steer were you giving them oh i mean the initial steer was that you know would you contribute a vegetarian recipe for q gardens and i mean the point i should point out it's quite important to point out that the book is published by q gardens and proceeds from the book go to raise funds for q for their very important research and conservation work so that's a very good cause you know so I think and so lots of people respond to that then I had to sort of say well like you know these are the sections so the book was divided into these six six broad sections including things like herbs and spices grains and pulses leaf I mean very broad because um by the nature of a book where you've got over 60 contributor recipes it's going to be very diverse and I wanted to give a lot of room you know for a diverse offering and I also wanted the cookbook to you know, Q works around the world, you know, these are, it's a global, you know, it, it works around the world in partnership with many organisations. And we wanted the cookbook to reflect that in the diversity of the the recipes, the cuisines. And it was, it was very much, I think, the so, so that was what I said to people. And then I just let them come back to me with suggestions. And it was really interesting. It's that really curious thing of how when you're trying to shape a project, but in a way, you know, there was a limit on how much shaping I could do in terms of what I was being offered. But it was brilliant how it it, it, it all came together. I, you know, sorry, I sound like a boasting, but I think it came together really well. You know, because it does it does feel like an organic cookbook. I think what's interesting is it's a, just a very I think that remit that I was given of making this an exciting cookbook that would get people out of the comfort zone. You know what I love about it is we got you know I did sort of say to some of the people I knew if that I mean I wanted Jenny Chandler in the book because you know Jenny is the author of a, a book on pulses and I follow many of the things that Jenny does have you know I do myself in my kitchen inspired by Jenny you know that cooking batch cooking pulses so I wanted that level of quality in the book you know and Mark Diakon has written a book about herbs he's given us a herb recipe you know Jill Norman who edited Elizabeth David and is you know a you know in sort of um, you know great authority on herbs and spices has given us a recipe that uses spices so there's a wonderful sort of patterning throughout the book of where I wanted people's fortes to be in our book even though it was just through one recipe but one you know, window onto that person in a way. Um, so that was fun. I found that really inspiring, actually, to put that all together. That's really lovely to hear. And it, it, what it makes me think, that I mean, all three of you in your way are educators, aren't you? Um, Samaya, how do you feel about yourself as a, you know, as a sort of conduit of knowledge and sharing of knowledge about cookery? 
Well, I mean, I've been teaching cookery for ever since I've been writing, and I love. I think both of them go hand in hand. It's really important to, you know, write the recipes, put them out there in the world, but then help people get confident and understand how to layer flavor and create, uh, you know, different ways of presenting stuff. And I think that it's sometimes recipes can, you know, be so one dimensional. You can't get the whole experience until someone actually shows you. And and one of the things is that I actually learned to cook uh, by uh, estimation and by instinct and that's how I mean I watched and everything just was taken in by osmosis no one actually taught me a recipe and so I like to try and make people comfortable to cook that way because when you start to trust yourself um, you can experiment and you can become more confident and and that's why I see myself very much as somebody who's here to do people a service to teach them how to cook this way which is you know it should come naturally and I think a lot of people are daunted when it comes to spices and how to how to add them especially to vegetables because you know they can I, they can sometimes overpower vegetables so I see myself as an educator and I think it's really important to be a writer and an educator because you can't be just you can't be divided because you are helping people become confident with a skill. Yes, I love that you say that you you learn to cook by instinct because I it always makes me feel a bit sad when people say, you know, if I've got a recipe and not got one ingredient, then I can't do the recipe. Yeah. And that to me implies such a lack of confidence. And yes, um, when I was um, in London caring for my elderly mother during the lockdowns, and I was chief cook and, and bottle washer, my brother and I were sharing the caring between us. But I, because I was so concerned about, you know, food supplies, we hadn't been able to get a supermarket delivery slot. So everything came on a weekly delivery. And that was all that we had. We did not go to shops because, I, you know, we can hardly remember it now. We were so frightened. <laughs> so I could only cook with what I had. And I was doing what I did, you know, I had to do, cook really carefully for my mother. And, you know, she had homemade soups every day. And then, you know, there was nothing else to do except eat nice food. So cook a three course supper in the evening. I don't <laughs> think my cooking has ever been as good because I was constantly creating and not using recipes, but just trying to be instinctive as you describe. And I actually think my cooking has declined since then. <laughs> everything is available again. But Jenny, Jenny Chandler, tell us, because you know, you're very much an educator too. Tell us about your approach and, and how you're, you're transmitting your, your vision to your, to your audience. Yes, I absolutely see myself as a as a teacher and educator, probably above being a writer. I have really enjoyed teaching Joe Public, you know, individuals over the years at various cooking schools. And I also feel that social media is a great way of sharing tips and information with people. But also something that I've been doing for about the last four years is I work on training sessions with chefs working in the um, food service sector. So, you know, really big catering companies who are dealing with hospitals, universities, um, catering on really big scale and really trying to help those chefs who trained in a time when vegetables, just like Jenny Linford was saying, were very much the sort of the side, um, you know, second fiddle to the meat or the fish. Um, I'm trying to help those chefs adjust to a new way of cooking because, you know, it's just so important. We've got to change the way we eat. If we've got guys serving literally hundreds of thousands of meals a day, when you look at these big companies, we can have huge impact by getting them to use more pulses and whole grains and seasonal veg instead of 
cheap sort of factory farmed um, fish and and meat. So yes, I work on sort of both levels, working with individuals who are passionate about cooking, and also you know professional chefs who hopefully are also passionate about cooking, but you know often see this whole huge tide turning to more people eating vegetarian and even vegan food as actually you know a bit some of them a bit of an irritation others are actually as you say almost like your mother a little bit nervous about it it's they're just not in their comfort zone so so that's what i am trying to do is just help people to adjust and realize that the the world of plants is actually a you know, opening a huge, really exciting larder rather than something where you're feeling you've got to cut out the meat and fish. Yes, I think it's I think we're living in an exciting times, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the fact that restaurants and all sorts of, you know, food service places are having to cater for more and more people who are asking for this kind of food is really exciting too. Yes, the the, the market is definitely there. Yes, and, and you know, even in, in France, which you never would associate with even sort of vegetarian food, I think if you're a vegetarian, you'd have to make do with an omelette. But they, they got their first three Michelin starred vegan restaurant last year, didn't they? which had much acclaim. And the um, the famous restaurant in New York, 13 Madison Avenue, is now plant-based only. Mm. It is interesting how, how, you know, I think all of us probably have seen so many changes in what's happened to food in Britain over the time that we've been working here. And when things can change, I think that's what's exciting. Trauma, and change can be very positive. And so, you know, diets can open up and embrace ingredients and and think about things in a fresh and exciting way, which is very much what this, what the Kew Gardens Cookbook is trying to do, is, is to say, to, you know, exactly what you were saying, Jenny, that instead of it being, oh, things, you've lost something, it's like, wow, no, there's this huge, diverse range of, of culinary plants and fungi out there. And, you know, and they're fun and delicious to, to cook with and use. And, you know, let's, let's enjoy that and go with that. Do you think, and I'd love to know, um, Samaya, what you might think about this, but do you think that perversely, you know, traditionally meat was the the province of the well-off, that now cheap meat is for the less well-off and that people who are better off are embracing this more plant-based way of life? Do you think it's sort of flipping? Um, there may be some truth in that. I think that there were always, I, I don't know the history of meat in Britain very well, because obviously I've only lived here about 17 years. But what I do see is that when I speak to people about eating more vegetables, they always say to me that good vegetables are expensive and meat can be found cheap in the supermarket and it fills us up. So there is some sort of a understanding that people have sort of taken on now that, you know, meat is, you can buy it, you can fill your stomach up with it. You know, there's loads there. You can buy supermarket bought chicken and feed the whole family. Whereas if you were to buy really good kale or, you know, lovely, um, sweet corn or something like that, it would be more expensive to feed, say, a family of five. So people have flipped. And I think that people who are more well off are able to have more organic vegetables, you know, really lovely stuff from, from you know, upmarket supermarkets and, and, um, and co-ops and, and places where they have lovely local vegetables. So I think there is a little bit of a, a disparity there now. And, and it does probably deter people from going for the good stuff uh, and looking at vegetables as something that can feed the family. Yes. 
yes, I, that does that does sound like a very sort of plausible uh, analysis yes. of, of where we are. And Jenny Chandler, I mean, living in Bristol, because one of the things that always uh, it concerns me, I mean, I live in um, North Lincolnshire and uh, Lincolnshire produces uh, 20% of the UK's food. And, and, you know, almost every cabbage that moves in this country is grown in the south of the county. <laughs> but I have the, the whole issue of food deserts, I think, is really not talked about enough. And I just wonder what your perspective is as somebody living sort of outside London, but in a foodie city, but not not it's not necessarily distributed very evenly across the space. Oh, no, I mean, absolutely. You know, it's interesting you saying that about Bristol being a foodie city, and it absolutely is. There are some fantastic um, new restaurants, um, you know, bursting out everywhere all the time. There are some really great chefs. But there are areas of Bristol where there are food banks, where there are some really great charitable setups now, with there's one called BS13, which is or heart of BS13, where they have a big vegetable garden and they're growing loads of stuff there. And if I go and buy one of what they call a ready meal, but it's actually made on the premises there, what I pay for my ready meal then helps them to be able to supply them free to people who are really in need for a few weeks. Um, and then there's a sort of a, a pricing st- structure so that different people can pay, you know, what they can afford for food. And and that's really fantastic locally grown food. But I just realised that those kind of setups are, are few and far between. And yes, we have huge areas with virtually no fresh food, small corner shops selling processed, cheap food to people who probably can't even get to even a large supermarket or a sort of fresh food market. So yes, I think there's a huge disparity and it's difficult to know how to address it. Sometimes you feel, gosh, by talking about all these fantastic dishes and, you know, trying to promote, you know, pulses and things which are going to cook, take quite a long time to cook. Am I being a little bit kind of elitist because there are lots of people who just this is never going to be on their wavelength. But I feel like, you know, we have to start somewhere. You know, hopefully we have a kind of ripple effect, but the, the financial, the economic side of things, you know, something as chefs that we can do really very little about. All we can perhaps do is try and encourage people to use cheaper, more economical plant foods. And, you know, sadly, I'm going to go back onto the pulses again, because that is my <laughs> obsession. Um, but, but you know, the, there are some really, really affordable plant foods, and we really need to make those more accessible to people and help with education for how to prepare those in very simple, quick and economical ways. It all sounds wonderful. I think we could talk for hours, but sadly, we're coming to the end of our time. Jenny Linford, I just want to congratulate you on pulling together such a beautiful and important book. Just tell us, share with us a couple of the things that mean most to you about this book. Oh, thank you, Caroline. It's lovely to hear that from you. But I I think I'm really proud of this book. I worked very hard on it. It was a tight deadline. And I think what I love about it is that I went to wonderful food writers as well as great, you know, famous chefs. You know, we're very grateful for people like Raymond Blanc for sharing recipes. 
but you know most of the book is from food writers and I think it's a fantastic roll call you know I'm proud of the fact we've got Claudia Roden Simon Hopkinson you know these are my sort of heroes and heroines of food writing and then we've also got you know lovely new exciting young food writers who are up and coming and on their way who might really admire like Anya Dunk who's a wonderful German food writer so I'm really proud of the quality of food writing that's in the book because that's subject that's very close to my heart I think people never realize you know how hard it is actually to write a good recipe and so I wanted that showcase I wanted proper you know I want this to be a working cookbook not just a sort of a pretty book that you buy and you don't use I want people to cook from it I want and that we know you know from having tried the recipes and enjoying them on the photo shoot how delicious they were and they're amazingly diverse so I'm sort of thrilled with the eclecticism I'm also very personally as someone who comes from Singapore I'm thrilled that I've got a pandan recipe in the book because <laughs> pandan is this long beautiful leaf called the screw pine that I'm always trying to I'm always telling people about when I do my sort of gastro soho tours, pointing it out. And it's used to flavour a lot of um, a lot of desserts, not just desserts, but a lot of desserts in Southeast Asia. And it gives a green colour and this very subtle sort of basmati rice-like fragrance to desserts. And Helen Goh, who's wonderful, who works with Yota Motolenghi, has shared this exquisite recipe for pandan chiffon cake. She's the most amazing baker. And that just made me really happy. <laughs> Well, I, that I can understand. I'm only wishing that rather than, in, than being in a virtual recording studio, we were all all sitting around a table with a delicious mezze of dishes from your book, Jenny. But we have come to the end of our time. Thank you all so much. It's been a cornucopia of delights. <laughs> Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.